are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited. We have Dr. Kyle Moore returning to talk to us about addiction medicine in rural America. This is Addiction Medicine in the Wild Wild West. This is going to be a fantastic episode. Been practicing up in Montana for how long now? I'm coming up on two years this summer. You have some experience, so we are going to just dive in. Well, thanks for having me back. It's it's great to be on here. I'm one of the avid listeners and have really loved seeing how this is growing and educating and helping a lot of people, myself included, and, and hopefully that of my patients. So, well, my background, I, I grew up in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and then uh, bounced around for medical training. I did medical school at Pacific Northwest University in the state of Washington, and then I decided to do a family medicine residency at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So we were in the Midwest for three years, and then we transitioned to the University of Utah for a fellowship in addiction medicine. And that's where I met Paula and some of my great addiction medicine mentors. And after that, I had a tough decision, which kind of plays into our topic here. You know, should I continue in an academic setting and in a city, or should I spread my wings and go into a more rural setting? And it was a really tough decision for my family and my myself. My wife grew up in a small town. I grew up in Idle Falls, which I guess is, you know, 60,000 people, small or big, it's all about perspective. But we ended up accepting a job here in Helen, Montana, which is central west in the state of Montana. It's the state capital, has about 35, 40,000 people in the city proper. And we've just loved it so far. It's been a great community for us. Here at St. Peter's Health, I practice as both a family medicine physician and I'm the director of addiction medicine. So approximately 50% of my time is dedicated to each of those. That's a great model, isn't it? Because you get to do both and it's not about 50% siloed and 50% siloed. I'm sure you end up doing family medicine for your addiction medicine folks and you end up talking about addiction a lot in your family medicine practice. Yeah, absolutely. You can't can't really separate the two. I, I try to to some degree, but it inevitably bleeds over a little bit. And it does. It brings a lot of joy to my life and was one of the reasons I wanted to do this because I, I didn't know which passion I had more in me. And I still don't know if I know that fully. Some days I, I come home and I tell my wife, oh, you know, that was a rough day. Like maybe maybe I just want to do addiction medicine full time. And other days I'm like, oh, that was emotionally tough. And the family medicine part of it was really fun. Maybe I should do more of that. So as of now, I, I really love having the balance. So Kyle, kind of tell us a little bit, like what is the great parts about living kind of in a little more of a rural setting and practicing there? What's that like? Well, the first one that comes to mind that I didn't think that I would appreciate that much is the lack of traffic. And when I was in fellowship, I was living in North Salt Lake and commuting to the University of Utah campus. And I left early enough in the morning when it usually wasn't too much of a problem. But coming home, if I was driving, it, it would take me at least 30 minutes to get home. And some people listening may think, wow, that's that's not bad at all. Um, again, it's all about perspective. But here, I live close enough where I bought an electronic bike. So I cheat a little bit. I, I get my exercise by running, not by biking. But I, I, I'm up a hill a little bit from the, the clinic and I bike to work most days of the year. And from the, my garage to my workplace, I can get to work in five minutes or less. And it is amazing. I see the mountains that come down the hill and it invigorates me. It's the best way to start my morning. I absolutely love that part of my job. And to not have to worry about traffic, I save myself so much time and money and 
it is wonderful. It is by far the best part of living in a rural area. I love that. I bike or walk to work too. And I think we're lucky to live close enough to do that. And I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, especially e-bikes. I mean, we could just have a whole podcast on e-bikes. I don't know how we could make that applicable to addiction. <laughs> but I think this, we this podcast is it. sponsored by e-bikes. Someone could yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I got my my family turned on to them, and I, I, well, we and we went so far as we got my wife one that has one of the baskets on the back, and we have three kids, and we put them on the back so we can do family e-bike trips, and we get quite a bunch of stairs as we go around the streets of Helena. So people in Helena maybe know me not by name, but by the weird guy that takes his family around on bikes. But I mean, there are many other advantages of living in a small community. It does tend to have a, a friendly feel, you know, the the stereotype of people care for each other. It, it does. Our, our neighbors are great. I love our next door neighbor. She you know, just yesterday, our kids were playing and a car came by kind of fast. And we both kind of gave a little bit of a mean look to the car because, you know, the kids were playing close by and it flipped around in the cul-de-sac and came back around. And my neighbor, retired retired lady, pops out in front of the car, makes them roll down their window and proceeds to tell them that it is not appropriate to drive that fast with little kids in the neighborhood. And, you know, just having neighbors like that that look out for you and, and are willing to come and help out, uh, we felt very welcomed in this community. There's lots of outdoor recreation. Montana's world-renowned for that. I enjoy trail running, so we I, I do a lot of that as well. Awesome. That's great. I'm glad you are kind of found your spot there. And there's no doubt that... I mean, it sounds like you're benefiting from it in your family, but the community is benefiting from you being there. Do you, Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to have, I mean, was there a program built in your town in terms of providing addiction medicine services, or is this something you brought to the table? And how, how has it unfolded for you as a practitioner and as a health system? Well, it's an interesting backstory that essentially before I came here, there was nothing formal in place. I'm not aware of very many people in the community who, who were doing any form of addiction medicine prior to my arrival, particularly at my clinic. There are a couple clinics in town where there are some people who are wavered with buprenorphine and who have who have done some addiction care. But for my particular institution, there was no one that was doing it. And so it really has been building things from the ground up. And so that's been both a, a blessing and a challenge. You know, when you come in and you start something de novo is people don't really know what to expect. I spent my first few months really trying to emphasize that I was not a pain specialist. Oh and my goodness, yes. I, I got kind of mean about it because we're... Addictionologist, I, I, I guess maybe I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I, I feel like in general medicine that a lot of physicians and providers don't really love pain medicine or addiction medicine. They think that they're challenging patient populations. I'm in the weird subcategory where I love addiction medicine. I still don't have a passion for pain medicine. And so I make that a very clear mark in the, mark in the sand that I, I'm a addictionologist, not a pain specialist. And that's really hard for not only patients, but providers to recognize that. So that was a huge challenge to start with. I don't know if either of you have ran across that in a more urban setting. All the time, especially in rural areas. When I was doing some consulting down with Beth Howell in Southeast Utah, we found this misperception really pervasive. And there's this idea that you're going to fix everyone's patients. And I feel kind of bad for the, I mean, I think the providers are well-meaning. They want you to come in and help solve this problem of chronic long-term opioid therapy or benzodiazepine prescribing. And they want you to just come in and kind of make it all better. And patients have no desire or they don't see themselves as having a use disorder. And they oftentimes, most of the time they don't. And so it's very hard to negotiate that. And we're not trained as pain specialists beyond our primary care training. I think we probably have more pain knowledge than most primary care doctors do just 
because we work so much with this population, but I find that was really common. And I still find it's common in the family medicine setting where people are like, oh, I put someone on your schedule to help them. You know, I want you to talk to them about tapering off of their hydrocodone. I, I have the skill set to do that, but, and maybe it is a good thing they see me because I can screen them for substance use and risky use, but I'd much prefer, especially in a residency clinic, that the residents learn how to do that themselves. That is such a good point. When I first started in my practice, I was the first buprenorphine prescriber in my county. And this was a good 14 years ago. 95% of my patients were self-referred. And so they self-identified as addiction and they were appropriate for treatment. And the only referrals that I ever got from any other doctors, exactly that. Patients would just show up and they'd be like, well, my doctor told me to come here. I don't know why I'm here. And those are really hard. And, and that's a big challenge. So probably less unique to just rural areas, except we have the option of saying, hey, you don't meet the criteria for addiction medicine and you have no interest in tapering you. This is how I would recommend tapering. But if they have no interest, then I can just say, hey, here is a reputable pain specialist and here are some other modalities I'd recommend and here you can go. I think you have less options in a rural setting. And that's a huge challenge because then you end up in this ethical kind of quandary where you feel like, yeah, I don't feel like this patient's safe on what they're currently doing, but what do I do? That's not my skill set. I mean, that's a tough situation. Oh, you're 100% right, Darlene, that we don't have any dedicated pain specialist in Helena right now. And so I get sometimes, I had a provider recently call and beta trying to help this patient the best that they can. And it's questionable, you know, does this patient have an opioid use disorder or is it simple opioid dependence? You know, the screening for that and then the management either way. And those are really tough conversations to have. And I think that that's an important part to acknowledge as as an addictionologist that it's not an easy point to bring up and to talk to someone about that. And then to say, look, we may not have a perfect solution. Let's work together on the best solution that we can have. And that's how I've tried to frame it and work with the, the patient's primary care provider if it's not myself. It's hard. I've even gone so far, there have been some patients and whether this is appropriate or not, I, I don't know, but I've told them, look, for the community you live in, there are very few resources for the conditions that you have. I will never tell someone how they should live their life or where they should live their life. Nevertheless, it may be prudent to consider a move if that's a really, really important part of your life. It's not uncommon for us to have, we have a lot of people moving from big cities, and this is a big problem that that we're having right now is people coming from San Francisco, from Portland, from Seattle, and they come here just expecting things to be exactly as it was. And it's a challenging news, kind of challenging conversation to have to say, look, we don't have those resources. Like we don't have traffic. That's great. Like I'll, I'll brag about that, but we don't have the resources that you're used to. And I'm, I'm sorry that that's a disappointment. I don't have, I don't have the ability to change that overnight. Yeah. So that's tough because it's literally a resource deficit. So you, you end up having to navigate how to help people and also how to provide appropriate care. So that's been that's been one of your challenges initially. What about actually taking care of folks with known or self-identified addiction like alcohol use disorder or methamphetamine use disorder? Have, how has taking care of these folks looked like compared to taking care of them in an urban setting? It's been very different, probably more different than I thought. Some of the things that I took for granted were the resources available. They're not necessarily medical specialty related like we just discussed. 
discussed, but recovery supports, you know, Narcotics Anonymous, for example, the, the meeting times and locations are very limited in the area. Smart Recovery, which for those not familiar with that, it's a 12-step facilitation program that is based upon basic criteria of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it removes reference to some of the, the theology and religion that's implicit within AA. And so for people who strongly identify as agnostic or atheist, it can be a really great option for them. And we don't have anything like that in person. I mean, there's there's online, but definitely nothing like that. I know that when I was in Utah, there was a, is it USARA, Paula? Is that the acronym for it? Yep, the, yes. um, it's a peer support network that is just amazing. They have such a fun and interesting and well-connected and loving support and recovery network where people who are in long-term recovery really wrap their arms around those who are in early recovery and bring them in and have fun activities and dedicated places where they can meet. And we we don't have anything like that here right now. It's something that is definitely on my radar and, and I would love to bring that into our community, but it's it's a challenge right now because I have people who are like, look, I, I'm new to the area. I don't have any friends and I don't want to just go to the bar to try to meet friends because I'm in recovery. Like, what do I do? Yeah. And there's the issue too, when you bring up support groups, not only it sounds like there's not a lot of groups available, or, I mean, relative to an urban area, obviously, and there's not the scope. Have you found some folks do not want to go to 12-step or other groups because of lack of anonymity in the community? I found, I've heard that from folks before. So for example, Park City, just up the road, I've had many fa- patients say, I don't want to go because they're an attorney or they're other another part of society. And they feel like if they're seen at that group, even though they're sober or doing what they should be doing, they fear their reputation may be marred. And Darlene, you were telling me, you said the same thing to me the other day. Something I ran into. I mean, we run into that here and I I have patients who come and see me and they're coming from some of these rural towns, even though I'm more in a suburban area, but they're driving sometimes two and three hours to come to treatment in my clinic. And, but then they're going back to maybe a town of only a thousand. They do have maybe an NA or an AA group in their town. But I had a patient just tell me this a month ago. He's like, I am not going to that group. He's like, I am a small business owner. And if I I go there. He's like, it's not anonymous. He's like, everybody knows me and this will hurt my business. I mean, it really has some implications to them in that. So you can sit there and tell them all the time, you need to be going to group. You need to go to group. That's not helpful. That is a challenge. Definitely. And I even have some patients who are hesitant to come see me because within my clinic, people know that I'm an addiction medicine specialist. So even though I do family medicine part-time, they're worried like, hey, if people see a prescription with my name on it or a piece of paper that says you saw Dr. Moore that they're going to be like, oh, that person's addicted. And uh, right now I have the fortune that, yeah, my my clinic is split. And so that's not a a 100% giveaway. But in the future, if I did only addiction medicine, it it would be. And one way that we've tried to address that a little bit is we we do offer some telehealth and some people are comfortable with that. I, I had a couple recently where someone worked in a position where she felt very vulnerable coming to our clinic. And so the husband comes and sees me in person. He's doing great. She comes and sees me via Zoom or 
some other platform or Microsoft Teams, and she's also doing great. So there's more than one way to deliver healthcare today. I always prefer in-person. For me, there's just something that's really challenging with, with the telehealth. For me, it takes away some of my satisfaction, but I've had to put that aside in place of patient benefit. And I recognize for some patients, that's the only way they're going to feel comfortable talking about their disease and getting the treatment that they need and deserve. Yeah, and the data is really supportive of that. Just really improving access to care. People who otherwise wouldn't access for all the reasons you just said, or just because of distance, they don't have transportation. Right. I mean, I saw a patient this morning that uh, she's living a couple hours away. It's, it's not an easy commute and, and she's doing telemedicine right now. And it makes it challenging for things like urine drug screens and doing a random urine drug screen, which is is an important tool in addiction medicine. I don't, I maybe view it a little bit different than some people. I, I'm probably a little bit more on the lack side because my experience is that there's some self-filtration that happens to some degree. And so if if I don't get the exact number of urine drug screen quotas that I should get in a week or a month, and it doesn't keep me up at night. But it is an important tool to help verify and to help us guide treatment, not as a punishment. And that can be, that's one of the challenging parts with distance for us is we have, again, patients that live in different parts of the state and it's it's hard for them to get to clinic. And especially if you're trying to get like a random urine drug screen, if they're not in town that particular day, then then it can be hard. Yeah, I'm sure that's challenging to get people for that very reason. I think probably it's the same kind of reason that delivering care like methadone becomes really challenging in an area where you have a large catchment population. And historically, we've had to have people come every day to dose methadone. Do you have a methadone clinic? To my knowledge, there's only one methadone clinic in the entire state, and it's about an hour and a half from where we are. Wow, one in the whole state? Yes. I'm very, I'm surprised about that. That that's pretty interesting, right? So it it essentially isn't an option for the vast majority of people, and and again, just kind of like a little plug for you know anyone who's considering moving, whether whether it's addiction or otherwise, really kind of your healthcare is a huge part of of what you do in your day to day life. So kind of know your resources. It never ceases to amaze me the people coming from big cities who never even considered looking into if there was a methadone clinic, and so they come here and it's like, I'm sorry, sir, there's there's nothing available here, and and they leave frustrated. It may change change. But for now, we have to look at other options for delivering delivering addiction care. So accessibility becomes an issue. That's I would never have even thought of that. I, I'm just about to move to a rural area myself, so I'll have to ponder on these things. Also, so um, what about detox? I put that in quotation marks because, you know, patients come off of their medications and we either medically manage them and help them or we don't. But what about folks who need medically supervised withdrawal management? How did you find that when you arrived? Who was doing, especially alcohol management or benzodiazepine management? And what do you do now? Well, that was one of my biggest, first big awakenings. I, I kind of have maybe poked fun at people for not being aware of where they're going, but I did the same thing. I came from fellowship and just assumed that I would have all these resources as a physician. And uh, so I, I guess I'm a little bit hypocritical in that. I came here and just assumed, oh yeah, you know, if if someone needs a, a complicated detoxification and inpatient detoxification, I'll, I'll be able to arrange that and then I'll continue to treat them in the outpatient setting because I primarily do outpatient addiction medicine. I, I do have hospital privileges and occasionally we'll do some consultations. 99% of my my time is outpatient. And I got here and there were people who met criteria for inpatient withdrawal and there was nowhere to send them. Our hospital, and it's a combination of a few things. Certainly there's challenges with living in a rural location. There's not dedicated detoxification center. Uh, it's our, our emergency department and local hospital. But also the pandemic made it exceedingly 
extremely challenging. We literally did not have nursing staff and, and still are struggling with that mightily to staff the hospital just for the bare necessities that not as big of a priority if it was not life-threatening, which alcohol detox, and I have had my share of arguments about that, but I've had to adapt. And so what we have done here, our team, we, we've tried to use the best medical-based practices and evidence-based medicine to do more outpatient detox. And that's why I'm appreciative of, of like this podcast, for example, is when I was creating some of our policies, I went through the episode that you guys did, reviewed some of the things I had learned. And I said, okay, what do we need to do? What are the labs that we need to check? When do I absolutely have to put my foot down and say, no, I will not do this. Even, even though I know resources are limited, when am I going to say, no, this is pushing it too far. And that's hard too. That's, that's been adaptable. And, and that's the art of medicine, not the science necessarily. Yeah, that's amazing. I know in some rural areas, a lot of folks end up withdrawing from medications in jail. And I heard a joke once, I won't say what town it is, but the jail serves as the local detox. The jail doctors become really adept or not adept at treating withdrawal. And so I completely agree. These protocols, I mean, we ha- Darlene and I have just come up with them. In fact, there was just an article I posted on Twitter that goes through all the non-benzodiazepine protocols that we can use for alcohol withdrawal and for alcohol use disorder. There, It's a great article published. Are so helpful. And there's some jails I know in South, Southern Utah that have adopted those protocols and they've had massive success. They use only, you know, they don't use benzodiazepines. They never would. But instead of having people seize and be completely miserable and give them just Imodium and Gatorade, they've started using tapering protocols of carbamazepine and and sometimes gabapentin, but mostly carbamazepine, and it's been really successful. In urban areas too, because insurers are not paying for inpatient management, you'll attest and I can too, we can't get people in, even though we're we're surrounded by hospitals that may provide that service. And then what do you have as far as like, speaking of like jail, do you have anything like drug court in Montana there? And are they open to medications? Do they allow you to treat patients? What's that culture like? We're fortunate that one of our licensed addiction counselors in town that I that I respect quite a bit, she worked within the uh, the Department of Corrections and the legal system, and so she's a little bit of my in on that and tends to know things a little bit. No, there's I, I guess I can't I don't feel as comfortable answering that because that's one of my priorities and has been for a while and, and trying to understand that more. Well, and one of the huge advantages that we have that kind of ties into that is there fortunately be you know the the tragedy of the opioid epidemic and just addiction in general is that we're, we're losing record number of, of people and it's it's tragic. The positive or the silver lining on that is it has brought a lot of attention to the issue and with that some money which is necessary to make all of these things happen. So there are federal grants that are available and a lot of them are just waiting to be used, particularly in smaller communities like where I live. And so the University of Utah, for example, obtained a federal grant where they can pick and they did, they selected a few of their community partners in neighboring states and have been a sponsor for them in implementing addiction care. So it's called the RAIN initiative, the Rural Addiction Implementation Network. And so we get a fixed amount of money each year to spend in the realm of addiction medicine. And so we just have to meet certain goals. And one of our goals, for example, was to make a bridge and more connections with local law enforcement, with first responders, and try to build some connections. And so we're actively working on that. And we do have the funding and the support to do that. That's amazing. I think I just was reading about that, that program. And I didn't know about it. So it's great to hear about it. And you're right about the funding. Moab, Utah, was able to get a grant from SAMHSA, a 
big grant and they've built a recovery center and are opening a methadone clinic and have a van that's going to do mobile outreach and mobile methadone, all thanks to this funding from SAMHSA. Yeah, it's so great. And today, read something about our governor has been promoting a new program called the ANGEL Initiative, which allows individuals struggling with addiction and substance use to go into any participating law enforcement office and receive assistance and get connected with the treatment. That's that's awesome. And it, I know a lot of the funding that has been made available recently is targeting or hopefully targeting harm reduction measures, I think in response to the fact that we have record numbers of overdose. So do you, how do you feel your area, and I don't know if you can speak for other rural areas, What's the reception for things like the distribution of naloxone, making clean needles and syringes accessible, PrEP and PEP, etc.? I feel like compared to more urban settings that we're a little bit behind on that. A lot of people haven't heard of it. And if they have, a lot of people are still opposed to some of it. So that's that's always a little bit of a challenge. We're making some progress. For example, for PrEP, for naloxone, I would say needle exchanges is, is definitely not on the table right now. Needle exchange programs. But there's there's a little bit of momentum heading that way, but it's it's lagging. Understandable. It's lagging in a lot of states. There are many states still that do not have syringe exchange programs, and it ends up being a matter of legislation. So any lobbying and advocacy you can do with legislators, it's amazing what what can happen even in a conservative state like Utah. Very passionate people got those kinds of laws passed here. So it will come, like you said. It's just a matter of momentum, which you're seeing. I have a question for you about the collaboration you have. I know you did some hospital work, but the collaboration you have as an outpatient, because you're mostly outpatient, right? Yes. Yeah. The collaboration you've had with your local hospital, do you get calls from the emergency room or the hospital with questions or referrals, or do you ever get asked to start buprenorphine for folks right away? Not as much as I want. It's, It's improving. And the thing that really stimulated that was I had an opportunity to work as a hospitalist during our COVID surge. We were so overwhelmed that they were recruiting poor guys like me to go over and and pretend to be a hospitalist because I was fresh out of my, I guess the freshest from from my experience working in patient medicine. So I had given presentation to some of our emergency physicians, to some of the hospitalists. My experience was that over Zoom in a pandemic, everyone's burned out. I don't know if anyone remembered a word I said or paid attention to a word I said, but when I was over working with them in the trenches, you know, for lack of a better term, I built some bonds and some connections. People saw my passion for addiction and for medicine in general. I felt like they began to trust me a little bit. And since then, I have had more of those consultations and every once in a while I'll get a call like, hey, would you mind coming over and seeing this patient with you know X, Y, or Z? And as long as I'm available, I try to accommodate those, even though I don't necessarily have it built directly into my schedule. It, for me, provides some trust and some bond building that we can work together on that. But I, I'm always open to phone calls and I am getting more and more of those from our colleagues across the street. And it's exciting to see that. And we've really gotten some positive momentum with a few of our emergency department providers. One of them went to a training with a friend and learned about a bridge program and buprenorphine prescribing, got her ex waiver, and now she's just on fire and a great advocate for us. Our emergency medicine friends are our untapped resource in addiction medicine. And I think they know it. I just had a conversation today with a friend who's 
medicines in addiction med- uh, in emergency medicine and they they interface with more patients with substance use problems and use disorder I think than any of us do and they're a huge resource that's so great to hear that that you're getting some of those relationships built because it'll only serve more people because as we know people with substance use whether it's just use misuse use disorder they most frequently engage with the medical system in acute crises it's yes. not like they are the folks who show up every year for their annual wellness visit they're showing up with cellulitis soft tissue infections intoxication encephalopathy endocarditis and worse and yeah anyway i think it's it's, it's been yeah it's been estimated that 50% or more of emergency department re- visits are related to a substance use disorder which is astounding astounding and it's hidden behind well this patient has a humerus fracture so we need to call ortho yeah that's true but why do they have the humerus fracture well they were intoxicated and on a ladder and they were unstable and fell and they have an alcohol use disorder that needs treated every bit as much as their humerus fracture. I hate treating things that I don't feel like make a big difference. And I feel like addiction medicine is where you can make the most impact in in health and in communities, period. I love it. I couldn't say it better. Do you see a predominant drug type there? I mean, I know we're all seeing alcohol pervasively and obviously the fallout from tobacco goes on and on. But um, have you found like, man, living out here, this small town, I'm seeing a lot of egg dot, dot, dot. This is anecdotal because I do not keep stats and I don't have anyone else to help me with that. But it seems like the vast majority of the patients that we get consulted on are alcohol use disorder as their primary substance. We have a large predominance of alcohol use disorder. Hidden within that, I would say we probably have a a higher percentage of chewing tobacco users. You know, the stereotype of the Montana cowboy with a pack of Copenhagen in his lip is kind of true. And the unfortunate part of that is the real harm versus the perceived harm seems to be mismatched with that. I think a lot of people understand that smoking cigarettes is unhealthy, but there tends to be a little bit more ambivalence or dismissal of chewing tobacco. And so I have a lot of patients who chew and they don't even perceive it as much of a problem. So they might be a little bit more resistant to engaging in in changing that behavior. So definitely I feel like I see more alcohol use disorder here and probably less of things like cocaine, some of the synthetic benzodiazepines. I had someone come in just today with had a severe phenibet addiction and that's really uncommon. Alcohol, methamphetamine in rural areas has the stereotype and there's some data to back that up as well. A little bit less access to cocaine, but it's it's here. And unfortunately, some of our providers don't even acknowledge that. I had a patient one time tell me that she told her psychiatrist that she had a, had been using cocaine and the psychiatrist's response was, ha, there's no cocaine in Helena and moved on in the conversation. That's, that's interesting. Is that kind of the attitude that you run into with providers? Some of them, unfortunately. Yeah, there's. I think there's a belief that drugs and drug use disorders are a big city problem and that it can't happen to your friend who's down the street or a lot of people know each other in smaller communities. So, well, it couldn't be him because I kind of went to school with his sister. So he was a good kid growing up. He, he doesn't have substance use disorder. So I think that that's part of it. And then there is a false narrative that, you know, the quote hard drugs couldn't make it to small town Montana. And they absolutely do. And, and oftentimes in a more fatal way, because we don't have going back to resources, there's maybe not as many people to notice if someone is down and there's not as many people trained with naloxone. When I was going doing some research on this topic, if you go to the CDC's website, their morbidity and mortality weekly report, I mean, they they talked about that. And you can tell us some more, Kyle, about just in rural areas versus urban, you have a higher overdose rate. 
And part of it is probably this lack of access to naloxone and just awareness. Because like you said, friends and family member might be in denial on the severity of the disease. And then they also talked about is just pure distance. So, you know, you don't have, I mean, ambulance like here, Mm -hmm. you know, I call an ambulance and they're going to be here in three to five minutes. Well, you might have volunteer like some of these volunteer ambulances, well, it might be 15, 20 minutes, 35 minutes before you have EMS responding to an overdose. I mean, those are just some of the challenges. I don't know what other, but do you see like a higher overdose rate? Is that what you're seeing? We had a stretch a little while ago. I think it was in March. Within Helena, we had nine or 10 opioid overdoses in our emergency department in the span of 48 hours. Drug task force got involved and and it looked like there was a contaminated batch of forgetting the exact details. I I do believe that it was fentanyl, that there was a higher potency than what had been deemed. And so we had a huge wave that got some attention for a little while, but unfortunately that faded a little bit. Far from here who had a similar type of thing. Yeah, it, it goes in waves a little bit. I had a patient today who going back to just what are some of the barriers in overdose and safety. She is someone in sustained remission. And I think people in sustained remission, as you guys know, they they have that eye. They can spot other people who are still in their active use before anyone else. And she noticed someone leaning up against a building a certain way. And she goes, I think that person's like overdosing. She kind of noticed that, whereas I think the vast majority of the community wouldn't. We don't have as much public transportation on sidewalks, not as much walking. And so I think most people wouldn't even know what that was about. Yeah, there's and there's the risk of stigma. I remember hearing in a very small town, we spoke to, Beth and I spoke to the providers in the town. What are you, what's your perception of the problem here with drug use and addiction and people overdosing? And with, no, not really a big problem here. Well, the front desk of that particular clinic we were talking to were all the people who volunteered with EMS, like two of them rode with the ambulance and they were like, come here. They're like, that's not true. We do runs every day to people who've overdosed or have some other problem with substances. The providers just don't see it. Either they're not choosing to see it or patients don't tell them because if you only have one doctor, right? You only go to this doctor. He's the only guy in town. And you come in and say, well, I just overdosed on my whole prescription of oxycodone. You're going to lose your supply. So there, there seems to be multiple layers of stigma and marginalization in, in rural areas than there can be in other places. And we have to dig deeper and, and uh, overcome that. I don't know what the answer is. And it- With your pharmacies, do you have support? Do you have trouble? with your patients being able to obtain their medicine, their naloxone prescriptions that you give them. I mean, I struggled with this when I first started practicing. I wrote a patient for naloxone and the pharmacist refused to dispense it to them because they didn't think it was appropriate. And you run into this in these small towns and these kind of small mom and pop pharmacies, like sometimes where they're just completely out of buprenorphine. We run into that. Is this a barrier or do It's definitely a barrier. And this is probably not just Helena, Montana. I think every community is going to have some good collaborative partners and some that are not as good. And I've, I've found that. And I have a short list of some people that I found that in my judgment, are not helping our patients for whatever reason. There was one in particular who I had a patient on a taper under close management supervision by me. And because of a very particular circumstance, I had even put in the instructions, okay, to fill one day early. It was nothing excessive. It was a lower dose. I was willing to talk to the pharmacist and the pharmacist refused. That's really frustrating. It's a lot of work. And again, especially when you're driving across town and you're trying to get to your job and you show up to your pharmacy and they're like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fill 
fill this for you. It can be a barrier. And what I've learned to do is because I can't tell my patients which pharmacy to use, but I can tell them I've had problems with this pharmacy. If you choose to use it, you may have some more barriers. And that's been my workaround. I have to be careful with how I say that, but I think I'm within the legal and ethical standards of saying that. And it's worked out well for me. I mean, you talked a bit, Kyle, about the benefits that you recognized in Salt Lake with USARA. So this uh, peer support um, advocacy program we have here. It's not possible in all small towns or rural areas, but there are some state-funded programs just like you, Sarah, that pay for peer coaches, peer-trained port people to work. They're in your area already, so they just need funding and training to be able to help your folks. And so I guess that's another kind of legislative lobbying, uh, Department of Health and Human Services at the state level um, thing we can all wish for is to have more peer support people in rural areas, because that really makes a difference too. good pharmacists and peer support people right in your home. Kyle said, you know, you need those sober gyms, those sober activities for patients to participate in. And the fun part of my job right now is I I was able to see someone today who's now 15 months in sobriety and she's going to school and her goal is to be a peer support specialist and an addiction counselor. And it is so much fun when she comes in because we're starting to build some of this with our own patients. And it's not for everyone, but for those who have an interest, it's there's nothing more satisfying than kind of seeing seeing your patients then give back to other people. That's so cool. So Kyle, what we have I have so many questions by the way. I think I could keep talking to you for three hours, but what do you love the most about what you do and in the rural area? What are the things that you're passionate about and why are you staying and what do you wish for? I guess those are my last questions. There's so many things I like about what I do and obviously there are challenges to every job, but I had a conversation recently and the patient that I saw was in her 30s and I went through the different substances and she'd been addicted to just about everything, just about everything. And I asked her as I was going through, I said something about Phenibit and she said, how do you know about Phenibit? And I said, well, I'm an addiction specialist. How do you know about Phenibit? And she said, well, I used to have a severe addiction to it. And it really opened up the door. The whole conversation changed after that. And she opened up to me about some traumas that she'd had, some troubles with the medical system. And she saw me as someone who not only cared, but had an expertise in this. And I'm not trying to say that I'm a perfect addiction medicine provider. There's still a lot of things I don't know. And I say the words I don't know perhaps more than anyone else around. I'm so ignorant on a lot of things, but I'm trying to get better. And I have have been able to provide some of that expertise to the community and they have been so appreciative. And having someone be able to open up and then make some positive changes and say, hey, I my kids like even noticed the other day that I was more present and they said, thank you. And I got a raise at my job or I got a new job. That There's nothing more satisfying than, than being part of that. And it's so much fun. And you can get that in any location, but in a rural setting when I feel like there hasn't been as many opportunities for people to use an addiction specialist line, it's been especially rewarding. I think what you're really describing is you're also building a community and you get to see that a little bit more in a rural setting. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's great. So Kyle, what would you say to listeners? Like we have amazing listeners all over the country, actually all over the world. Is there anything as a rural, like the solo guy, solo doc in a rural area, taking care of folks with substance use and addiction, talking to therapists, residents, medical students, doctors, uh, lawmakers, researchers. What is there one or two things you wish people knew you could impart to them? Speaking to practitioners, I would say there's a fine balance between knowing your limits 
and pushing yourself. And that's a really important part in, in a rural area is that you sometimes have to do things that you're not as comfortable with that you haven't done before. And that's okay. That's how you grow and that's how you grow a community. At the same time, you have to be cautious not to be reckless and not to do things that may be unsafe. Learning how to do that and being a continual learner will get you a long ways and your community will appreciate it and you'll grow in ways you've never really understood you could. So I'd say that for practitioners. For the general public, I would say that living in a rural community is a marvelous blessing for so many people, but there are unique challenges to it. And so understanding those challenges and working to improve them, not all of them can be improved. And they're just like with health, they're modifiable and non-modifiable things that we can do. And it's the same thing for a rural community. You know, we're never going to be able to change some of the distance issues for patients that live a long ways away. But some of the support groups that we have available, some of the stigmas that we have, those things can change. And so work on the things that you can change and embrace the things that you can't change. I love it. Thank you so much, Kyle. That was fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. That was wonderful to have you. I love it. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.